Welcome to Black Diplomats, the dopest podcast on foreign policy in America. We decenter whiteness, interrogate imperialism, colonialism, and white supremacy. And I am your host and founder, Terrell Jermaine Starr. Our three guests this week are going to help us take on all of the evils that we're going to talk about. First up is Dr. Suni Rucker Chang, Assistant Professor of Slavic and the Director of European Studies at the University of Cincinnati. We also have Nadia Grechu, who is a student at Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. Then we have Dr. Chelsea West Ohuri, who is a cultural anthropologist and an assistant professor in the Department of Slavic and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas, Austin. And we all are going to be talking about Blackness and, you know, why these three ladies are involved in Romani culture and studies and, and, and activism and talk about parallels between the experiences of, of Roma and also that of Black people. And, you know, this is a very... <sighs> This is a very interesting time, and I'm I'm in Westchester, New York, which is uh, I'm in Terrytown, which is about 50 minutes away from Grand Central Station. I came here to write. I needed to get away from the quarantine, so we were already plagued by disease, and now we are getting a new wave of mass killing and abuse and murder of black people in America. And I was thinking about borders, you know, I came here to get peace, but another form of violence plagues the home where I live, you know, and it's just no other way to kind of break it down. And so it just feels very poignant that we're in these times and we're, we're all here talking about this very specific work that we do. And so I just want you all to introduce yourselves. So um, let's start off with you, Sonny. So tell us about yourself and particularly within the context that we're in, we'll just go one by one. Um, <clears throat> so, sure, sorry. Um, I'm Sonny Rucker Chang. And like you said, I'm an assistant professor at University of Cincinnati. Um, my work right now, I'm really looking at uh, racial formations, cultural formations, and trying to draw parallels between African-American experience and the Romani experience, as a, but I, with an understanding that is very multifaceted. And so with that goal, I'm really seeking in my work to figure out our points of solidarity, figure out our points of um, intersections, because I think we have a lot to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. um, we'll talk about it more obviously, but one of the things that I'm engaged in, one of the things, one of the goals of my work and everything that I'm doing right now is to broaden up the conversation of black, blackness and marginalization and how we can all sort of be in the struggle together. When you deal with Eastern European studies with, from the American side, uh, there's a great deal of resistance amongst a lot of folks to talk about blackness and broadening it within the Eastern European context, you know, um, and that, that resistance, I, I call it, uh, American exceptionalism, 
where we think that this form like blackness only exists and not just in the African sense, but in a stereotype sense, right? You know, um, it only exists in America. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to hit back on with you on that one. Um, but Nadia, tell me about yourself. I'm a student here at CU, currently um, doing a Roma graduate preparation program. And I was very, very lucky to get a scholarship by the Open Society Foundation and to attend an amazing program which is helping me uh, specialize in international relations and political science, also advance my skills related to English language, how I use it in my academic speaking and writing, so that I can be more competitive as a Roma and uh, land a good MA program, which actually happened uh, a few weeks ago. So from September, I will be starting my studies in, in the international public affairs in Vienna. I'm trying to be a Roma activist. I, I still think it's quite a large title to, to carry it at this age. I'm trying my best to be that um, because I think that um, I owe it to myself. And um, in order to stand up for myself, I, I do need to be an activist. You know, when you say there's a large title to come up with, and, and I'm, I'm really interested in getting this answer from you because when people look at you in America, and they look at your face, they may assume, they, they'll make the assumption that you're white. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people still don't think that they will see aroma in an academic environment, which is very disturbing. And the other thing is that uh, people uh, have an image in their minds which they have constructed of Roma. So you don't fit it with that image. And also, uh, when people say that Roma only have a darker skin, that's another uh, thing that we need to think about because being Roma does not necessarily uh, revolve around your skin tone. So it is kind of um, a multi-layered uh, um, question. And it's not easy uh, to explain it to people, but to those who are willing, they, they, they understand. For those who are willing, so you're dealing with the same thing in America where we talk about race to white folks and too many are not willing to have the conversation. So I feel like there we are all in the same space where we're trying to explain our humanity to people and it requires some willingness to, to listen and you run up against opposition. Exactly. Exactly. That is, and you do that uh, not just uh, with uh, non-Roma. You do that also within the Roma community, because it's a very prolific thing, and you need to have in mind that there are so many different Romani sub-communities. So, so to say, within one community, then you constantly need to, you know, prove yourself and uh, show that you belong to this or that tribe or community. And it, it is kind of one of the reasons why, uh, even when there is resistance of Roma, it's not seen as unified and it's very easily colonized. Mm. So I, I think that, yes, we, are, we constantly have this um, burden of having to explain ourselves to non-Roma. What we are as Roma or, for example, my, my skin tones, for example, lighter than the skin tone of my father 
for for my of my first cousin, which uh, actually meant that they had a larger burden to carry than I did, because it, when people saw them, they would immediately assume that they are Roma. When they would see me. Uh, they wouldn't immediately think that, but then when I would introduce myself, say my last name, or they would ask me about my family, they would realize that I'm Roma, and you can then sense differences in the way that people treat you. Uh, not all people, of course. If you wanted to pass, could you? Do you know what that means when I say to pass? Yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. I get it. Uh, I don't know. I think it depends on whom you... Um, on whom you end up in, with in the room, um, but I suppose that I could in some ways. Although I, I still have people who tell me, you know, when I see you, I know you're Roma. Other people tell me, no, you do not look Roma to me. And then I ask them, but what does it mean to be Roma? So it is very um, different uh, for, um, for someone who is Roma and who is not bearing the image that people have about Roma not just related to the skin tone, but also other expectations that they have of Roma. We are going to talk about your childhood in Serbia because that's where you're originally from. Um, but we're going to get to Chelsea so she can introduce herself to people because um, I, I just want people to know that there are Black people, particularly Black women, who devote themselves to Romani studies. And we're going to also talk about how y'all got into Romani studies as opposed to Russian studies, the field that I entered through. So that's going to be a fun conversation. <laughs> so, so go ahead, Chelsea. Uh, yes. So um, I am a social cultural anthropologist. Um, I also do some medical anthropology and I um, am assistant professor at UT Austin. And um, actually my work, um, is primarily in Albania, and I um, I often don't say so. Though I though I do work um, with a lot of members of Roma and Egyptian communities in the Balkans, I often say that I and I'm not sure I'm someone who does Romani studies per se, mm -hmm. but because I study race and racialization in particular, thinking about um, racialization as it pertains to whiteness and blackness in Europe, then I end up doing a lot of work. Um, that is um, aligned with Romani studies, if you will. And um, in particular, because um, I, I love a lot of the points that Nadja was making, uh, because there's a lot of uh, language in Albanian um, that's very racialized, even if not named as race and racialized. And a lot of it has to do with uh, language around questions of phenotype and skin color, but also... Um, just the way that these social racial categories are formed, um, even if people don't name it as race, uh, right? And so a lot of that um, involves, involves a lot of ethnographic work with Roma and Egyptian communities in Albania. And so that, that's, that's how I came to this work. I first began doing fieldwork in Albania in 2006. And as a black woman who was in a village where um, most people had never seen a black person in person, a lot of people still didn't even have TVs at that point. It was a very rural, isolated village. I um, instantly got very curious with questions about uh, race. And that's kind of how this started and, and continued um, as I did more work in cities like Tirana, where there are much larger Roma presence um, than there were in rural areas. Yeah. So what, what's the name of the village? So the village where I was first um, years ago. 
Yes. It was, was, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That village is called Theth. It's T H E T H. It's in the high mountains. It's near where, uh, it's not far from the uh, pass where Albania, Montenegro, and Kosovo uh, meet. Okay. So I am opening up this, uh, this champagne bottle because um, I'm doing this because. I just feel the spirit is calling me to just celebrate the fact that I'm black and I'm alive and I'm breathing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ashe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here's the thing about Albania though, and I definitely want to talk to Nadia about this, is that I want you to explain why people are not talking about these experiences as race. Mm-hmm. Because what you were experiencing there was very racialized distinctions between people. And, and, but what I'm saying is that now there are people like you who are in the field, who are discussing, who are using race Mm -hmm. and not ethnicity Mm -hmm. to describe these dynamics that you're observing. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and so tell me even why aren't people calling it race, even though you immediately identified your experiences as that? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, we could, we could be here all day just on that. And um, that's something I'm working on in my book right now that I'm writing. But um, I will say, to bring up two points, I would say it's twofold. For one, um, when it came in particular to being in Albania and discussing experiences, because Albania had, a, um, well, so, so the more recent history of being a, um, a country where communism only ended in 91, having been very isolated from the rest of the world, you know, Albania was what, you know, what present day North Korea is like is what the equivalent would be, right? The closest equivalent, mm-hmm. if you will. And so for many people, there was such um, that experience of um, being a communist country was so recent and the experiences of isolationism under Hoja's policies that the idea of race... Explain Hoja's is, explain that. Oh, I'm sorry, yes, Enver Hoja. Yes, Enver Hoja, who was the um, Albanian dictator. Yes. Um, up, yeah, okay, and so um, an increase, uh, so, and I'll just yeah, give a little background, right? So Yeah, give um, a little after, background, because, yeah, we're yeah. talking to people so we can bring them in, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so after, once Albania, uh, officially the Communist Party took over in 46, and um, Albania remained a communist country until 91, it was the last country um, in um, in Eastern Europe for, uh, where communism, uh, um, the communist government was still ruling, and, um, and Inver Hoxha initially had um, the, the country had relationships with the Soviet Union and then with China. Um, but um, in the 1970s, the country increasingly became more and more isolated. Um, and um, it was never a former a part of the Soviet bloc, if you will. It, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't even really fit the criteria for a satellite state, right? And so right, um, yeah. I say that to say that that's how I made the comparison to North Korea, right? That that's like the closest comparison to understanding how isolated mm-hmm. the country was. And so for many people, because of that, um, and because of a very um, big emphasis on hospitality and a welcoming guest and um, of, of, um, of, a, of, a, of, I think, a sincere desire to want to know more about people, the language of racism just felt really contradictory, right? It didn't feel like something. And so people would recognize that people might be ignorant because of, that's said a lot, or people might be ignorant because of the isolationism, or people just may not be as familiar with travel. We weren't able to leave. We didn't have visitors, right? A lot of that kind of language would get used 
because there was a fear of like discussing racism or what it might mean to be racist, right? So in many ways, the a lot of the conversations around racism, I, there was a lot of tension. Just with with who happened, though? Tell because we need it, to know who. No, I'm, I'm talking about with, this is with Albanians, right? Okay. With, like, a lot of my interlocutors, right? So when I say, uh, and so when I say it's twofold, I'm talking. So on the one hand, there was um, resistance to even engage conversations initially about racism because of that, um, but then also there was a lot of resistance to talk about the experiences of Roma and Egyptians um, because a lot of people didn't necessarily see that as racism, um, that they maybe saw it as the differences in, um, in treatment, issues around um, respect is a word that gets commonly used. Um, often Roma especially are blamed for their own experiences because of poverty, right? A lot of discourses we see in the United States talk about- Like, like, like black, black people, we're explaining exactly. for, you know, like we, we, we pillage um, and raped and stole your land, but it's your fault. Exactly. Right. And so the, so, there, so the resistance that comes to even discussing race happens from that. And, and also, too, because when race is brought up and racialization, people immediately jump to racism. Right. And so um, I was once interviewed on an Albanian television show um, about my research. And a lot of the focus was on racism, which is something that I do look at. But what I'm actually more interested in is like, racial categories and racial formations and how we understand what races and are and, and, and who gets racialized in what ways, right? But but as with most conversations, and this is not unique to Albania, this is unique to most places, mm-hmm. the dis- discussions of race bring these fears of racism. So that so that's one. But the other quick thing I wanted to know, something you already kind of nodded to, is that I also, though, was encouraged by people early on to study nationalism and ethnicity, this is, this is Americans, because race and racism didn't exist in Eastern Europe, right? And so I received a lot of pushback early on with my research interest, um, including once I presented a paper at a conference about, um, that was mostly actually about gender and looking at and trying to understand um, gender. And one, the first question from the audience was, well, are you calling Albanians racist, right? Um, and I was, uh, and, and, there, and there was a real resistance to discussing race. And most of the, uh, many of the scholars in the breakout after that were all people who worked in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union were just convinced, like, well, this, is <laughs> this, is, this is not a thing. This is not a thing here, right? So I would say both those things contribute to, so when I say early on, oh, people don't like to talk about race and racism in Eastern Europe, there, um, there are multiple factors that contribute to that. Yeah, so, so Sonny, I want you, I want to get your feedback on that because you had a similar experience mm-hmm. Um and if I remember correctly, you were saying one of the main reasons you started into uh, in Romney studies was because of the backlash you got from the Russia <laughs> people. Um, yeah, so I want to, just before we sort of hit on that, I do want to also bring in the, the context of World War II and a just general discomfort about talking about race Absolutely. as a yeah. usable category throughout Europe. So because of that resistance, anytime you start talking about race, as Chelsea is saying, it's automatically tied to racism. And if you are talking about race, then you are talking about racism. And I've actually received that feedback before, which then brings you into this space where it's not even something that you can talk about. Because to talk about racist means that you're a racist, racist yourself. Um, so, and that kind of puts me into, leads me into the discussion of why I decided to get into Romani studies. Um, because you should, it should be known that I started in Russian, 
Russian area studies. Um, and then I shifted to Southeast European studies. My dissertation was actually, actually on Serbian nationalism, right? Um, and so then I pivoted to Romani studies because I needed to find a space where I could talk about race. And it was a very comforting space because I found some of the um, same critical frames and critical points of views being used in the literature. And I thought, oh, this is wonderful. This is a comforting space. And I said things out loud about race, about blackness, about whiteness, and no one stopped me. I would get to the point in my paper and wait for someone to let out a deep sigh or raise questions and say, well, why are you even bringing this up? But it was never an issue. It was, well, I see your point of view. Well, what about this point or what about that point? And it made it a very comforting space. And ever since I meant to look on my CV, I forgot to do that this morning. I apologize. I think it was 2014 or 2013, the first time I went to Romani Studies Conference. And I found it to just be... Um, an enriching experience and a reaffirming experience in a way that I had never experienced in a Slavic studies conference. Now, that's not to say that I'm not going to do Slavic studies conferences because I will, because I think that, um, as I, I know that you already know, this perspective and this point of view needs to be infused. If not, if it wasn't the case before, it's definitely the case now because we know that global flows of information and the politics of race and racialization are something that has had an imprint everywhere, right? So if we refuse to talk about that within our disciplines, then we have very little to talk about anymore. Um, another piece of this is definitely the nationalism question. I started out, the reason why I talked about Serbian nationalism was because those were the frameworks that I had available to me, right? Little did I know that I was talking about race, that I was talking about difference, that I was talking about otherness, that I really needed to be signaling other scholars. But I also didn't have the language or the frameworks to discuss that because it's not taught in the curriculum. Yeah, so like, I want you to go into that because, we, so look, we need to go into this because I have a master's degree in Russian, East European and Eurasian studies. I was the first black person to earn a master's degree in Russian, East European and Eurasian area studies from the University of Illinois in 2019, the first, okay, and my program was very welcoming. They were great to me, but there was a lot, a lot of the, 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 the pedagogy was not, did not have a racial, did not have a race analysis in it. And from my two years of being a Peace Corps volunteer in Georgia, because I'm the person, you know, in the panel who did, uh, I'm, the, I'm the former Soviet Union guy. So I, I did, I've traveled to that part of the world and I'm going to Uzbekistan this year. So, in this field, what we do learn, we learn about the black people like Langston Hughes, the artists, the the um, the the agricultural workers from the historically black colleges that went to these places. Uh, you know, they went to Uzbekistan, for example, for cotton curation uh, and, and growing. And so we know all these stories. But what we don't have enough of is a general understanding that of how the propaganda of their bodies was a utility for the Soviet state. I mean, it's there, but it's not interrogated from a race perspective in that you like you did not have enough information where you could explain your own experiences in these in these spaces, because when I for example, with Ukrainians, and I always tell this, tell people this, 
If you walk around Ukraine generally, particularly Western Ukraine and Central Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine is a whole different story because of decolonization uh, and, and the re-deportation of, of Russians into that space. That's another conversation. But generally speaking, when you talk to a lot of Ukrainians, they use very racialized language to describe their experience, even though they all look quote unquote white. I run into people who tell me it's not racial, it's, it's not race. But when I have a Ukrainian man who looks like he's 90 years old, walks up to me in Lviv in Western Ukraine, this is a true story. He walks up to me and, and I'm the only black person there. You know, they're Ukrainian. This is during my Fulbright in 2010. He walks past this big crowd of 20 people, walks through them, comes directly to me. And he says, well, you know, do you speak Ukrainian or do you speak Russian? He, you know, he extended his hand and he looked like he was a, a veteran. And I said Russian because, you know, the Fulbright, they, they taught us Russian at the time. And so this man, his opening words to me were, do you want to know about our country? Do you really want to hear the story of Ukraine? Which is a very bold, big question. I'm like, okay, sure. Um, and he says, Ukraine is a colony of Moscow and they want to enslave us again. That's what he said to me, okay? That's what he said to me in Russian. And so he went by all, all those people to talk to me. That to me was a moment where we both shared an experience of race. It's different from nationalism in my like it's a part of it, but the way that this man was talking to me was that as a human being, for who I am, the state, the Kremlin wants to oppress me for who I am because of my ethnicity. That was the language that he used towards me in that conversation before the other Ukrainians kind of pulled me aside because the guy was going to talk to me all day. But, <laughs> but what I'm saying, Sonny, is that when I was in my master's program, we didn't have enough conversations about that. And the, and the professors were well-meaning, but they didn't have the pedagogy. They didn't have the knowledge to really instruct us on this. But you are a – well, I'm just saying you're a pioneer. You and Chelsea in this field, you are pioneers of this because I had no language. I had no backup. I just had all these white boys trying to fuck with me and tell me that I was crazy. Mm -hmm. But now we got backup now. I'm just saying, I'm just honoring your work and that you do in, in you giving us this language because I'm learning in real time from you. But the thing is, is that... Um it's nice to have a space because there is a desire now. I think the next generation of scholars that are coming along are no longer going to tolerate not having discourses of language, discourses, of, I'm sorry, discourses of, of coloniality or discourses of race, racialization, because they know that, that that's a factor in all of this. Two more things I wanna say specific to Yugoslavia and Serbian space and then Nadja, please, you know, fill in because this is this is yours, right? Um, in terms of race, which I found very different than my experiences in Russia, is the impact of the non-aligned movement. 
um, which really has an important role in discussions about race and difference. And the fact that Yugoslavia really bound its identity to the non-aligned movement and the fact that there were so many black and brown people that were in the country that then race could not really be an active category in that way for them because they bound their identity so closely to them. Now, there's a lot of debate in the literature right now about whether what the uses of the non-alignment were, but the fact that there were so many people there, the fact that Tito spent so much time in African countries, the fact that Tito spent so much time, you know, surrounded by black and brown people. Tell us who Tito is because a lot of us don't know who Tito is. Tito was the leader of um, Socialist Yugoslavia from its beginning to his death in 1981. So, um, is it 81 or 80? Am I getting my date wrong, Nadia? Okay. Okay, thank you. All right, just wanted to double check that. But so, because of the very close ties, the very close relationships that Tito had to these black and brown um, who were called the colorful brothers and sisters of what we now call the Global South, race in Yugoslavia and now in Serbian space, which I consider to be um, one of the most clear successors of Yugoslavia in many ways, race has a different function there. And so the language of colorblindness in Serbian spaces is very important. And it sounds a lot like the way that we, for generations now, have been talking about colorblindness, Mm -hmm. Um, which is why when I talk about race, when I talk about blackness, both in the book that I've just recently published, but in my current work, I say that we have to look at race on these various levels. We have to look at blackness on these various levels. You have to look at the external forms of blackness, the internal forms of blackness, and then the blackness that was in many ways embodied by this idea of Balkanism, which in some ways is okay to talk about within scholarship. The fact that the Balkans is different than Europe proper, so to speak, which makes them um, ethnic, which I'm, I don't want to start quoting scholars here. It's, it's almost like my nature to do so, but a form of ethnic racism, as you were. Hey, listen, say, say what you got to say so we can learn it. <laughs> yeah. this, this idea of ethnic racism. So Western Europe looks at Eastern Europe, specifically the Balkans, as so different to the fact that they're racialized. And so uh-huh. because of all of these different layers of blackness of race, the question of race and how we use it, or if we can even use it in the Balkans, is very complicated. And I think in this regard, Albania, Yugoslavia, Eastern Europe or Central Europe, and Russia and Ukraine have to be marked as different categories. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. most definitely. And I, most definitely. I like that a lot because I was, that's something I was also getting at about Albanians is that, um, so, and so it's also important to understand too that when we're talking about Albania and Albanians, it's important to distinguish um, because there's the Albanian and there's the geopolitical boundary of Albania that we know today, which is the country of Albania, but also to know that Kosovo and Macedonia have large, particularly Kosovo has, you know, it's 90% Albanian and then Macedonia is somewhere between 15 and 20% um, Albanian. And so that's important to note too, because so they're Albanian who are part of the former Yugoslavia and then those that were the Albanian nation state. And they're two different experiences of communism. Hey, Chelsea, mm-hmm. Chelsea, let me, let me go. I just want to give people some geography. So basically oh. when we talk about, no, 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 it's, no that's, that's, that's the reason important. why I'm here. I'm feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling there. So basically, People know me as the Eastern European guy, and I want to get people, I want to carve out, I just want to kind of distinguish the map. So Macedonia, Albania, those are the Balkans. And so the easiest way to think about this is think about the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. All right. And so when you look at Bulgaria, Bulgaria and Romania, and you go further and you go in the Southeast, which is where we all are talking about. So those are the Balkan areas. And so 
you're going, that's the other side of the Black Sea. Now, when you go east of the Black Sea, that's where you have Georgia, that's where you have Ukraine, that's where you have Russia, which is the Eastern European, which is like the former Soviet space, the 15-member bloc. So I just want to get people just so they can figure out where on the map where we are going. So go ahead. No, that's very important. Thank you for that, for explaining that. Yeah, so that's important to know, too. So we're talking, um, I like what Sonny said about understanding Albania, before Yugoslavia, Central, um, then other parts of um, Eastern Europe, Central Europe, and then the former Soviet Union as distinct um, the distinct histories and understandings of the words uh, race and like racial categories is really important because um, as we talk too about the experiences of Eastern Europe and how it's been othered um, in t- um, from Western Europe and you could even think about, you know, Said and Orientalism and then also, Bakic, uh, I'm sorry, Said and Orientalism and then Todorova's Balkanism, but then also um, Bakic Hayden's Nesting Orientalisms. All those are really important frameworks to understanding the mm-hmm. experiences. But Albanians have often seen themselves too as kind of like, like the but the racialized othered othered within the con- construct of Europe, right? And so for many Albanians, they have understand, they understand their own experiences of being racialized and um, experiencing high levels of racism from other Europeans. And so that's also really important too when, and when addressing questions of race and then also whiteness and then what relationship Albanians have to whiteness. And I'm speaking mostly about Albanians in, in East Central Europe right now because Albanian who've immigrated to Western Europe and the United States, that brings in a whole other question around. Yeah, but let's talk about it within, yeah, so here's the thing, the question before we we get to Nadia is, what is Albanians' relationship to whiteness (laughs) within their context? Like, that's what I wanted, because the thing is that when I talk to, no, really, because of most Americans, we have a very binary idea of it, and so did I when I went to Europe, and so when I went, the prime example was Georgia. Right. And so Georgians are caucus people. They're not Balkans. But I, I hear a lot of similarities in the, you know, in, in, in the treatment with caucus people, which are, are, you know, the biggest caucus states are Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan. But we know we have Dagestan, we have Indusheti, we have Chechnya, which is known because of all, all the negative reasons. And so there's a whole southern region of Georgia that, that is the, the northern caucuses. Um, South Ossetia, North Ossetia, Ossetia, for example. And they, went, I, I'll never forget during the war in 2008, um, and this is the prologue to my book, I was in Batumi, which is a resort town on the Black Sea <laughs> um, in Georgia during the war. And so the the the, the Kremlin launched an attack in, you know, in, in, and um, via the CIS troops and um, Commonwealth, CIA, Commonwealth Independent Association, something like that. Commonwealth of Independent States. Yeah, 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 yeah. Commonwealth of Independent States. Yes, Commonwealth of Independent States. Yes, thank you, Sonny. So, which is a whole nother, which is basically Russian troops. But 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 anyway, um, it's hard for me, just like you, it's hard for me not to kind of get into like, like the weeds of it. But, in, but, but, but anyway, because they're basically Russian troops. But anyway, um, the war happened and 
I remember walking down the uh, the boardwalk, and about ten guys, Georgian guys, they walked up behind me and they startled me, and I'm like, oh shit! And then they immediately thought that I tensed up. They're like, yo, calm down, bro, calm down, calm down. And so I was there learning Georgian language, you know, and so. I basically was doing four hours a day of Georgian language. And so, you know, so all my sensories were up because I'm understanding this small talk that people are having. And they had just come back from Moscow the week earlier. And they said the reason why we came back is because we were fighting skinheads every day. We had a long conversation about this. And so they're like, yo, bro, in Russia, we black too. <laughs> <laughs> and Russian is chordany, you know, that's the word, you know. And so being 29 years old and growing up in Detroit, which is the blackest city in, in America, I never assigned the word black to somebody from Georgia, from the Caucasus, who in America would look white. But the longer I stood, I stayed there. And the more I heard people say all this racist shit towards them, I understood why, <laughs> you know, and some of my best friends were Georgians in Ukraine, especially because they would say, listen, we both fighting skinheads. If you got a problem, we'll roll up with you. Oh. Yeah. So like the Georgians were our homies. And, you know, in America, they would be white or what have you. But like even when I lived in Georgia, like there was this commonality where like, yeah, we we get shit from, you get shit from the white man in America, we get shit from Russia. It's all, like, that was the tone and tenor of it. And so, yeah, with you, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in interrogating this whole idea of what whiteness is like in Albania because white, like Albanians remind me so much of Georgians, but I don't know because I've never been there. For sure, there are some people um, who I've um, done work with over the years who have aligned themselves in a way that maybe they, they feel like they can um, tap into like a political or social political blackness because of their experiences as Albanian, right? But I also want to like, I, so what I try to do in my writing search is to both make the distinction between the experiences of African mm -hmm. diasporic peoples across the world, in particular in the Americas, right? Um, and understanding the unique particularities of, uh, of, of the black experience in that context, and especially in, in a white supremacist nation like the United States, right? And so understanding that, but then also looking at, uh, which is something I believe that Sunny is, has done a lot in her most recent book, is looking at those points of intersection, and then also looking at um, experiences to really understand um, forms of racialization and, and, and racial formations and responses to various states throughout the globe, right, or across the globe. And so I think that's important because then it allows us to, to ask a question about frameworks of whiteness and, 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 and how applicable are they to a place like Albania. And, 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 and maybe not necessarily thinking about what can an American framework of race and whiteness teach us about Albania, but rather what does a study of Albania teach us about whiteness and about race? And so yes. I think that is the question. And included in that also is the experiences of Roma and Egyptians as well and asking questions about whiteness, about blackness, and about how they operate, right? Um, and so in my research, for instance, as well, one question that I ask is like why some people... so those who identify as Balkan Egyptians to um, implement the language of blackness, right? And to describe their experiences 
in the Balkans and in Albania. So like what, what allows for that and, 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 and how, like what shapes their experiences such, such that this is the lens through which they use, that they, that they tap into the language of MLK to talk about the movements needed for their own types of reformation or revolution, right? Like that, I think those are the types of questions to ask. And I'm like, I'm like Sunny too. Like I'm trying not to quote people too much. Um, but I think that um, David Goldberg's uh, framework around like racial regionalization and understanding regions in terms of race is really key because we get that world, that we get that post-World War II context. We get that um, context, you know, after communism, um, but, and that's helpful for understanding the particularities that shape a place, right? And so I think, I think all those factors are really important. And I hadn't even, I hadn't even brought in religion, right? So I'm going right. to let Nadja, I'm going to let Nadja yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but we can come back to religion too, because of course, religion and Islam play a huge role as well into how Albanians get racialized. Absolutely. Nadia. I think for Albania, it's uh, key to say that there is this um, so-called Dora Barth, Dora Zeze, or white hand, black hand theory. Yes, yes. So basically, you have a society that's completely okay with the theory as such. They take it as a part of a traditional value, and they view people as, you know, white hand or black hand. And that's really something that, that's important. And you can see that, for example, when it comes to uh, marriages between non-Roma and, uh, or better say, Albanians and Roma. Because they often uh, do not want to marry Roma because they see them as the black hand people. Mm-hmm. All of them do not necessarily need to have a darker skin tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go yeah. more into that, please, uh, and Nadia. Go go into that, please. I mean, for me, it's fascinating because you have this theory which people are aware of, and when you come to to marriages, and I think marriages are a good thing to analyze because it shows the pressure that they have from the families not to marry someone who is of the so-called black hand, and it goes also vice versa. So if you are Roma, you have a pressure not to marry someone who is not Roma or an Albanian because they do not belong to your hand. Mm. So it is, it is very uh, interesting how uh, both groups are in a way adopting it, but refusing to talk about it. So you do not talk about it, especially uh, not to people who are out of Albania, who are not Albanians or not Roma, because you, you feel like it's a bad thing to talk about. You feel shameful to talk about it. But at the okay. same time, people live by it. Um, Nadja, that's a great point. I, my introduction to Dory Barth and Dory Zez actually happened when I was sitting with some friends of mine. Um, we were in one of the, there used to be a Roma camp on the lake, on the Chini, and um, the national lake in Tirana. And we were and sitting there. these places because we want people yes. to have a yes. mind. So the yeah. uh, Chini is the word for lake in Albanian. And so we were at the national lake, um, I'm sorry, the, the lake at the national park in Tirana, which is the capital city of Albania. Yeah. And at that time, um, there was a, lo- a rather large Roma camp. And when I say the word camp, it's... Um, a lot of families who did not have uh, formal housing structures and they had informal structures um, that would be shaped like tents or barracks and living on the lake. And at that time, there are about 40 families there. Um, th- th- that neighborhood has since actually been destroyed by the municipality to make way for buildings of new condos and stores on the, and storefronts on the lake. But 
but this was around 2012 when I was there and we were sitting there, um, sitting around a fire and one um, person there was something along the lines of, oh, all of us together, all of us were Dora Zez and included me. And it was, and I had been in Albania at that point, I had been doing research for about six years and had, and had um, been speaking Albanian for at least about four years. And it was the first time I had heard someone say Dorzez. And so I asked again, and he was like, you know, Dorzez, the people like us, the black ones, and Ezez, um, it means black in Albanian. And I, and I wrote, I remember writing it down in my field notes saying, I don't know what he's talking about. And then in an interview later, um, it's, he brought up marriages. It was, I had an interview with one of my neighbors whose niece was going to marry someone who was Albanian, not Roma. And he said, I can't believe she's marrying Dora Barth. And I said, Dora Barth? I don't... And so I had him explain Dora Barth, right? And he said, you know, the white hands, the white people, the Albanians. And he kind of talked like, you know, quit asking me stupid questions. You know who I'm talking about. And that's... Again, I'm writing notes. Like, I actually don't... I had not heard this. And so then I went back to my... Like, my closest friend there. And she was like, oh, yeah, well, you know, we use this language, but not you know it's it's not formal in the sense that you all might use it in the US but people understand you know th- it to mean this and that and so long story short one of the chapters in my book is based on this in my dissertation I talk a lot about Dora Bar Dorzez but not just right in terms of how it gets used because it's not something that you could find like a census tracker right or any kind of formal language in that sense but but the, the, it, it, but there is common usage, and it varies across Albanians. I talked to some Albanians, maybe from Korcha, for example, who are like, "Oh no, we don't really rely. I don't know those categories, right?" But maybe if you're in Central Albania, if you're in Tirana, then there's an assumption of like who that is and who's in that category. And so I think that's a, that was a fantastic example. Um, and still, we need to interrogate like Ebar the Nezes and what that means, right? Not just to take it for face value, the American understanding of white and black, because that also includes stuff about culture and behavior, not just like phenotypically white or black. Right. Um, but I, I'm glad you brought that up, Nadja. That's a really good example. Yeah. Nadja, I want you to follow up on that, but particularly, uh, when you follow up on it, then tell us about growing up in Serbia, where you grew up in Serbia, because you grew up during the war. I think that Chelsea and uh, Sunni did a very good job of, um, invoking this idea of regionalism. And also these differences between, you know, rural and uh, urban places, because there are different understandings of black and white in, in those spaces. But first of all, we need to constantly have in mind when we talk about the Balkans that uh, we don't have a full definition of who belongs to Balkans, which is creating an additional problem. For example, is Greece Balkan or not, having in mind that they belong to EU? We often forget about Greece. Uh, also, we need to have in mind that um, now we have this idea of the Western Balkans. So it is Serbia, Albania, Kosovo, Macedonia, Bosnia, uh, Montenegro. This is another layer, and we are constantly building and building more layers. So in order to understand it, we really need to historicize. For me, the key periods are, and the key things are that uh, Balkans, parts of Balkans were under Austro-Hungaria. Uh, almost all of it was uh, part of uh, the Ottoman Empire. So all of these empires and uh, colonizers, they they brought their own perspectives on white and black. By the way, I mean, let me me interject. I'm sorry. So with with the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, for a lot of people who don't know, is modern-day Turkey. 
I just brought that up because with a lot of this, my whole goal is to help people understand, you know, these terminologies and these areas. So I want people to put uh, like on the map so they can pinpoint it as you explained. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just had to interject a few of those things. Yeah, we, we can say to some extent that this modern day Turkey, but it was much larger. Yeah, it was much larger. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Perceive as Turkey. Uh, so, I mean, at one point, Egypt was, parts of Egypt were also part correct. of a very long historical period. Uh, the thing is that um, under the Ottoman uh, Empire, um, people in the Balkans, and even now when you talk to a lot of them, when they reflect on the history of their ancestors, um, they felt like it was a more fair society than, for example, the way that people were colonized under, if we take uh, the colonization of the British of certain other places in the world. Uh, so uh, that's another thing to, to take into account, that people, people are also having this burden of different colonizers and their own perspectives on blackness and whiteness. Um, also, um, when, it, when it comes to the communist period or the socialist period later on, uh, it is very specific for Albania. Albania, as Chelsea mentioned, had gone to, uh, I, I really don't have a word to describe it. I mean, you have to go there and to talk to the people and to see what they've gone through. It is horrible. It is, I mean, there are uh, allegedly uh, around some say 200,000 200, or up to a half a million of um, underground bunkers built by uh, the um, communist leader Enver Hoxha. So they constantly lived in this fear and isolation of the rest of the world. And uh, the the Tito Tito's party in Serbia. That's another thing. The communism and socialism later on did. It was different. So yeah. um, it it is it is different different context to 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 compare. For me, right now, I am actually writing uh, my thesis uh, here at CU related to the experiences of Roma under in Yugoslavia under socialism later on during the 90s and the violent rise of the ethno-nationalist state. And then later on, we have this um, neoliberal or transition economy to, uh, leaning towards neoliberalism. And in all of them, you can actually see a certain... Um, racialization of Roma. Uh, and in socialism, it looks like they were the least racialized because as a biopolitical system, it actually provided them with a lot of physical things that you needed to thrive. So they would have jobs, certain specializations, but yet they were not um, able to work at all jobs. So you could, you could get a job, which was amazing. You had this building of the Romani working class for the first time under socialism. And then uh, those jobs were just, it was limited for certain fields. Uh, and then when you move from socialism, in which Roma established some kind of a trust over the state, overnight they lost that, that trust. And uh, there comes the raging, uh, very very violent uh, ethnic nationalism, genocide all over the country. Um, and they are waking up in a new country in which the only, for example, the Roma that I made interview with, with, they're from Serbia. They are waking up in a country where all that matters is that you are a Serb. And uh, for example, one of, the, one of the contributors to the paper told me, 
that uh, the state would take uh, the permits, working permits from them. They stopped uh, letting them work. A lot of them never found the job again. So you also had at the same time the, the um, killing of the Romani class. When class. did this happen? Tell us about when this happened exactly. So it is with the, with the after the death of Tito, um, the 90s actually, with the rise of Milosevic and the fallout of Yugoslavia, um, we usually talk about the ho- horrible things that have happened to people of Bosnia, Croatia, Serbia, and that's the dominant discourse about the fallout of Yugoslavia. Rarely you can hear people talk about Roma. Because there was no interest in it, because there was no state, no Romani state emerging out of Yugoslavia. There is a Croat state, there is a Serb state, there is a Bosniak state under Dayton, so to say, uh, but there is no state of Roma. So no one really. Even a Kosovar state eventually, right? Yes. Eventually, you have Kosovo. In, in later on, Kosovo arises. Uh, of course, you have Macedonia, Slovenia before that. Uh, but all of those people, they've created their knowledge. You had knowledge production about them. And, and you don't have any traces, no micro-histories, no historization of the experiences of Roma. And what I'm trying to do in my paper is in a way to give at least a little glimpses of what, ha- what happens to, to the Romani people uh, in these uh, systems and uh, ruptures, uh, how they went through the ruptures of these systems. Um, yeah. So when, when Milosevic uh, was coming into power and uh, it was becoming a very dark period, at least in the words of my parents, um, it, um, it meant that you were no longer a Yugoslav. There was no such thing as Yugoslavia. So before that, you could declare yourself as Yugoslav and you felt like you were to quite an extent protected and safe by the state. Uh, but when the 90s came, um, you could see Srebrenica, you could see um, also Priedor and other places where both, I mean, Muslims and Serbs and uh, Croats and other nations were killed. But no one was talking about the Roma that were there. No one was talking about the Roma as victims. And uh, Roma were often among the first to be in, into the uh, compul- uh, compulsionary draft. So the army would draft Roma first because they were just the bodies to stand on the field, to sell them into the war. And no one talks about those bodies because they are just bodies which need to protect the value of the life. In the case of Serbia, it's the life of Serbs, not the lives of Roma. And we, we don't get to hear a lot about that. For me personally, I mean, I was... Uh, very well protected by my parents uh, and my family who made sure that I do not, as a child, um, have as much uh, of a negative experience, uh, but still you could, you could understand things happen. And uh, then at one point, uh, 98 came with the NATO bombing of Serbia, which made things even more horrible because now you are under this bombing while the only thing is that the well, only thing that counts is to be a Serb. So you don't even know whom you can rely on or on whom you cannot rely on. Um, and we don't get to hear about the experiences of Roma in that period. They are literally the invisible people. They are just the bodies. Mm-hmm. How do you? And I want to ask you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. As we moved from that period on, I mean. Um, 
under socialism, people had um, great health care. They had uh, public schooling, which was, uh, of course, free of charge. So socialism brought a chance for Roma to, you know, uh, feel at least equal to some extent. But with the 90s, they lost their chances. And then comes this idea of the transition economy, privatization. It's a more of a neoliberal state. And at that point, um, everyone is talking about meritocracy. So they tell you as a Roma that, you know, if you do a very hard job, you have an equal chance, which you don't, which you definitely don't. Because if at my home, none of uh, my family members know how to write or properly speak Serbian, how am I then going to have an equal chance at school? Even if, if the school would treat me in the same way, I still don't have the same uh, beginning position, starting position. So uh, your Roma are now in this in this ho- horrible abandonment uh, period, where everything is left as oh, it's your personal responsibility. You have personal responsibility. You know, I'm you know just to bring it in. Sonny and Chelsea know this. It's about personal respect. Your personal responsibility. Uh, we we've heard this our entire lives, and. I have to bring up our uprisings. People wrongly call them call them uh, riots, and I think that's very. I, I think to to describe what's happening in America as a riot is using the colonizers' language. And Najee, I know you understand. We we understand how colonizers use language uh, to mischaracterize our frustrations and our pains. And so this personal responsibility language is used in order to tell us that everything that happened to us is not the fault of the state. It's because you haven't worked hard enough and because you have not bought into this, in our context, the American dream. So I'm curious, do you have American dream language in Serbia? Was there a dream that you were told that if you worked hard enough that you will realize, but obviously you never realized because of the obvious. That's the exact story of what neoliberalism does. You are basically left on your own and uh, uh, all the, all the bad things that are happening to you, they're your own choice. And we are completely going to, you know, Uh, be blind to the role that the society has, to the role that race has, uh, to any experiences related to other people, everything is only your fault. Which on the case of Roma, we can see that it's definitely a lie that is served to us. And sadly, a lot of Roma um, are easily buying that lie. Because we feel like uh, you know, it's meritocracy, it's better. We watch these movies, a lot of things coming also to us from the US and the pop culture. And uh, the Serbian society is telling us, you know, you just have to work hard. There is no one is stopping you from going to school. I mean, we don't, we don't have segregated schools in Serbia. If there were to be a case, I know that it would be publicly condemned and uh, the state is really actively working on that. But it is more than that. There is sometimes this violence which is invisible to us. It doesn't have to be performed in the sense that we see it. Um, 
And that's what's happening right now. You have Roma who live uh, without having uh, drinking water. And it's their own responsibility. They don't, they don't have drinking water. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, uh, I wouldn't even say that it's a build-up. I think it's different uh, moduses in which racialization um, operates um, in different historical contexts for Roma. And for Yugoslav Roma, it's, it's a lot of burden to carry because at least in socialism, you uh, had built some kind of a trust towards the state. There was common trust. Um, but then even that false hope that you had there, that race won't matter, that got co- completely out of the picture with the 90s and later on with neoliberalism. Neoliberalism, it's, uh, it, it's something that we're going to talk about on Black Diplomats in another episode. Cornell West is very good with breaking down neoliberalism in America. Um, and I'll explain it. So basically, neoliberalism... It's basically, um, it, there are wide definitions for it, and every, anybody in here can help me add on to it, but it, it, it's the use of the military. It is the use of, of private enterprise. It is the use of private political entity in order to run the state. And so basically neoliberalism is the militarization of the police force. That is a neoliberal, and and the idea is that the militarization of the police force is a solution to so-called crime, which is national protest, okay? You know, um, and what you said to me stuck out to me is that you said that a lot of Roma bought into it. In America, a lot of black people have bought into neoliberalism. We bought into this myth. We bought into this lie. And I think the reason why we bought into it is because I think that we are truly afraid of what it means to seek our liberation. And that, that, that's a thing. I mean, like we know we want it to change, but we want things to change. But when we deal with specific solutions, defunding police, right? Um, demilitarizing police is too far because we can't think beyond what safety means without police. You know, and everyone else, before I move on, I mean, anyone else want to add on to the, the, the neoliberalism, neoliberal definition? You can all join in, Sonny. I mean, you may have a add on to that, or Chelsea, but I mean, before I move forward. I, I mean, I think you did a good job of speaking to it. I think um, when you brought up to like the private sector, I think one thing that's helpful for framing it is that uh, one way of understanding neoliberalism is that if it works for the private sector or the market, then it's good for the public sector or to speak to society. And so you gave the example of policing and militarization, but, you know, it spans across education is a a great example and um, experience too. We think about going back to Nadia's point about segregated schools and, um, and Roma. um, Exactly. Exactly. Right. (laughs) And so we see the ways that, you know, neoliberalism has shaped, um, you know, these huge domains across society um, 
and, and then that the rules of the market, especially if you think about things like competition and the openness of the market, so-called openness, right? That um, those who are advocating for those positions then um, expect that the government would be hands-off and would not try to do anything to ensure any type of uh, equitable distribution because the idea should be this idea of an open market, right? Which we know it all is not open at all. It's already suited to uh, benefit the rich and benefit the wealthy and benefit largely those who are white. But those are some of the tenets of like, of like neoliberal um, thinking exactly. and thought. And it starts a lot with the Chicago school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's something that we also need to take into account. So maybe if someone wants to learn about that, maybe we should look into the views and ideas served by the Chicago school and how they viewed on it. Because that's what made us think that we are atomized individuals and that's the right way to live a life and that everything is about personal responsibility and that meritocracy works. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, recently you have a really good author. I think um, uh, his name, last name is Markovitz from Yale. And he, he was, uh, although he's not referring as, uh, as much about race as in my opinion he should, but he's also pointing out that meritocracy doesn't work for anyone. It's not just that it doesn't work for us. It doesn't work for those people who are on the surface looking like they are winning. White people in America, you're exhibit A for America. Yeah, it doesn't work for anyone. I mean, we are all, it's a zero-sum race. Absolutely. I wanted to have this conversation with everybody because, uh, you know, as we tune, we have about 15 minutes left, 10 to 15 left. And so I, I... I wanted us to have a conversation so we could all want to introduce our listeners to how wonderful and dope y'all are. But um, I think it's very important to convene this with that with, with a, a woman and two black women because I think that we're having a decolonizing conversation and we're talking through neoliberalism, all these this language that we uh, want to impart on other people. And I'll tell you about my own moment, my recent moment, moment with uh, Roma. I was in Ukraine in December. And, well, it was, yeah, it's December. The end of December. Of, uh, uh, and um, we don't have as big a population in Ukraine as there are in the Balkans but there's a sizable number and they face discrimination and isolation like everybody across Europe and every place else. But when I got out of the train station, I was walking with my bags and um, going towards my Uber there. And I saw a police officer running in my direction, like just hauling ass, you know, and me being a black man that lives in New York City, when I see a cop, I freeze up. I'm like, holy shit. But also what's interesting is that in Ukraine, I know that cop is not going to kill me, which is another story. But what happened after that is that they ran past me because I immediately noticed that they ran past me. I'm like, okay. And they ran to what appeared, okay, to be two Roma people, okay? And they stopped these two Roma people, and the cop 
turned around. He looked like he was like, he had some rank on him. Maybe he was an, uh, a sergeant or something like that. And he was shouting a question at me. He said, check your bags, check your bags, check your bags. And I'm still kind of halfway waking up. And I'm like, what? And he was like, check your bags. And so I'm still not processing what was happening. And I started checking my bags and then my pockets. And I said everything. And then I realized, oh, okay, he's saying that these people may have pickpocketed me. And I'm like, I have everything. Like, I'm fine. <laughs> and then the guy, and then he said, check your bags. Like, check, check, check again. Check again. Like, he was very, like, a persistent, you know. And I'm like, I'm fine. He was like, you need to make sure. Like, check again. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. So basically, I was fine. But there are several things that I, that I reflect on from that experience. It was a very bizarre, bizarre moment for me because I'm so used to police officers abusing their authority on me. And what I witnessed was the cops abusing, you know, which I, you know, to me, they, they, um, they profiled these people because they didn't take anything from me. <laughs> okay, that's the thing. They profiled them and you don't know why they were there. They could be on the train just like everybody else. But because I was so tired, like there are certain instincts that I did not engage in, for example. Like normally, if I were in America, I would have taken out my phone. I would have done a number of other things. Be like, if you're okay. And I did stay there, but it always, and I did kind of stand to see if they were cool. But it was a reminder to me to always be vigilant, not only about myself but of other marginalized people and how I need to stand in support of them. So I was dealing with a number of things. I was dealing with this, this, this thing of, I need to get away from these cops, but I'm looking at these cops harming another minority. So I was, I was, I was struggling with that and I'm still processing that right now because I'm writing about it in my book. So it just leaves me, as I say it to say, because I it just it, it, I know I need to be vigilant, but because I'm still processing it, I know that these people were profiled. Like it, I believe in all my heart, you know. But it's a it's it's a new experience when I'm dealing with another group of people who are facing marginalization and discrimination in a space that. If someone IDs me as a foreigner with means, even though I'm black they assign that discrimination to the next group of people. That's precisely the reason we as African-Americans, Black people in this country need to understand that there are similar struggles happening elsewhere so that we can form solidarity, so that we can, you know, so we can know what is happening. Um, the most recent, so my book that just came out in April, uh, For Better or For Worse, is looking at um, civil rights from an African-American perspective, but then also looking at Roma rights so that we can see, so we can learn from each other, so that we can understand that our Blackness the way it's it translates differently it's a sign right and so because it's a sign it translates differently in different spaces 
And so we have to understand how that works, but we can't understand it if we don't know the struggles of other people. We can't understand it if we aren't interacting or having these conversations about where our convergences lie. So thank you for doing this because it's part of a conversation that I hope more people will have so that when we're out on the streets or when we see people like us protesting, know that there are other people that are doing the same thing, having the same struggles, having the same or very similar um, issues of marginalization, issues of school segregation um, brought up, maybe not in Serbia, but in other places in Eastern Europe. Um, and there's a, there's a larger conversation that needs to be had. This is the beginning and it's great. And I hope that in all of our work, which it sounds like we're doing it anyway, we will continue to build onto that conversation. The great thing is, is we're also educators. So we get to pass that on. We get to reinfuse race. We get to reinfuse marginalization. We get to reinfuse the struggles of other people around so that we know that it's not just an American phenomenon. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I think too, um, in this particular moment, um, in the context of COVID-19, I think that COVID has really laid bare some of these issues and allowed a point of entry for the, um, t- to think about what that, uh, what that would look like to, um, to, to come together and think more about this. And I'm thinking in particular because I've been working with a couple of uh, Roma organizations in Tirana trying to address the issues of food insecurity in Roma neighborhoods and how, how there were already issues with um, food insecurity and, and a lot of families struggling just to make do every day. But because of the strict quarantine measures that were put into place in Albania, that those issues were um, amplified. And whereas you already had people struggling with, even, even uh, on the brink of starvation, that these things were just amplified more so under COVID. With a question too, though, also still about what work gets deemed essential and who's an essential worker and what that means and who still has to be sacrificed for uh, on behalf of the state. And so that I've been having those conversations with activists in Albania while at the same time living as a black woman in the United States, where we see that being front and center, even in the midst too of the uprisings and we see what's going on throughout the country. And so while we don't have the same experience, if you will, I think what Sunny's talking about, COVID has offered even another opportunity to really um, have those conversations about these forms of marginalization and racialization in a way that um, continually, you know, really points back in questions, questions about, about white supremacy, about power, about inequality in, in these very, um, broad ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nadia. So tell us about this march uh, that you're, that that's being organized uh, in Budapest. Yes. Yeah, so uh, we got a message a friend and I that there will be a march organized probably by the end of the week. The organizers are still getting um, they're in the process of obtaining the permit for doing the march, and hopefully the CU community uh, will join it. I'm sure that we will. Um, as we have other marches, for example, uh, in uh, February, we joined the march against the um, rhetorics, the fascist rec- rhetorics of the um, Orban and his government against Roma. So Orban is the, pr- is, is the uh, prime minister of uh, Hungary. Hungary. Yes, 
guest who actually, I mean, if we have time to talk about the case shortly, there, were, there was a group of Roma children who uh, were segregated, who had to go to classes only in the classrooms uh, which were located in the uh, basement. They could not use the same toilet as the non-Roma. They could not use the IT labs and they should have been remunerated for at least in a way for their suffering, but Orban went outside like in the public and he said, you know what, these Roma, they, they only want to get the benefits, something in that lines, and he was trying to influence the, the, the judiciary system, uh, which is uh, an appalling thing. I mean, it, it's a European Union country. Hungary is a European Union country. And as such, um, I don't think that... Uh, I don't think that it is uh, in any way possible to, to, for it as a country to have a statement making uh, this kind of uh, racist uh, and violence invoking uh, statements. Uh, so we did that march a few months ago and the Roma children, uh, they, they won their case against, against the state, the educational system, uh, and that gives me hope in independent judiciary. Uh, and also in activism as a way of pressuring the government to deliver on their promises to the people. Uh, that's why I think that by going out in the street, we will show solidarity to the African-American people, to the people in the U.S., to all the racialized people, black people, people who are deemed as undeserving for no reason at all, obviously, um, people who are going under police brutality, and I think that we really need to do that, to show that solidarity and to also show the governments that the people have a saying. Yes. Yes, so, I'm, thank you I'm so much. That, Go ahead. And I'm happy that you are organizing this kind of conversation because if we keep on having this kind of conversations, we will create oral history, reflect mm -hmm. also on micro experiences. And I think that together we can learn a lot. Yeah, we, you know, one one of my, uh, the people who inspire me is Lorraine Hansberry. She died in her mid-30s, a very, very young, uh, one of our uh, great American scholars, uh, Professor Amani Perry, who teaches at uh, Princeton University, has written the best biography of her, Searching for Lorraine. Uh, and and uh, it's, a, it's a classic uh, book, and it, it's one that, um, made me love Lorraine Hansberry even more. Uh, her internationalism, her her belief in socialism. Um, she embodies all of the hopes and all of the dreams and ambitions that made me start Black Diplomats and to have these types of conversations. And so... We needed these types of conversations because this is about decolonization. It's not about having conversations to heal. We need to have conversations that decolonize, that challenge the imperialism that we all experience. And because I am someone who believes in internationalism and that black liberation is more powerful when we bring in people like you, Nadia, you know, the people who are, who are Roma who face the same things because white supremacy is international. White supremacy is global. And we all need to fight this big behemoth motherfucker together. That, to me, is the work that I've been called to do. And I'm really happy that 
you three, it's also important that the three of you are women. And I did that on purpose. And there are two black women, an aroma woman who's a student in Budapest. And I want to censor black uh, women and women in general like yourself, Nadia. And it has to be done on purpose because white supremacy was done on purpose. So I want to thank you all for helping me, helping me to have a, a, a conversation that decolonizes this discourse. And you all are inspirations to me. And I'm very glad that you took the time to talk to me today. And we definitely going to be in touch about how we can continue to do this work. This will not be the last conversation that we have. Thank you for creating this space. Thank you. Indeed, yeah. thank you. Thank you, everyone.